Hi, it's Sid. Welcome to my Artist Talk series, where I host contemporary photographers, bookmakers, and filmmakers to be in conversation on creative practice. I also speak with curators, publishers, and people who run arts organizations, all those who support and amplify visual culture. We focus on ideas, challenges, and resources. Thank you for joining us. Let's get started. Welcome to our Artist Talk series. And I am so excited to have with us today um, someone who's known as um, a man in a van, uh, someone I've known for uh, several years and had the good fortune of sitting in on part of a workshop he gave at the Palm Springs Photo Festival. And I also had him as a participant in my workshop at the same festival for Concept Aware. So for me to snag Dan, because he has a very busy schedule. Um, I'm super excited. So I'm going to jump in and just give you a little flavor before we uh, open up this conversation. Dan is an athlete. He's a gearhead. He's a long-term storyteller. He's an explorer, a birder, a biker of both varieties, a teacher, also a student, an inventor, a fly fisherman, a film geek, a bookmaker, a voracious reader, a history buff, a former fashionista, a bookmaker, a designer, a journal writer extraordinaire, a nature lover. He's whip smart, he's opinionated, he's a podcaster, a YouTuber, he's a man in a van, he is so flipping funny, super hilarious. Honestly, you're giving so much information, but you are also making people laugh and you open minds with a crowbar. Uh, you are a shifter. What you are not is you're not a photographer or a filmmaker, according to you. And while you do not believe you are cool, I disagree. And where we cross paths, and I think there are more than this, but a few of the attributes that we completely share, and one of the reasons we're talking today is we both have a book problem. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is you and I draw the line at country music. So. I, I can't do it. I can't do the, <laughs> I can't do country music. I negotiate I've... with one of my <laughs> kids in the car who does like country music can't do it. It's like I can't, like I cannot. Anyway, welcome. Welcome, Dan. I'm so excited. Wow. what? Unpack. That's one of the best introductions I've ever had. You did, <laughs> you did your research. It's, um, it's actually, and it was really, uh, it was accurate as well. It, oh. um, that, was, that was fun. Goodness, you are fun. You are so fun and you are such an out of the box thinker. And you you keep going in opposites for me, which I absolutely love, love because you are this intrepid student 
and class A teacher. You, you go from both parts. I was trying to, to qualify your creativity and the word I came up with was volcanic. And the reason being that I think you go from this hot core that is not seen. And then it's like, you give us these platforms and we'll talk about them where you allow us to surf on the lava flow. And then what happens is just like a volcano, the aftermath, it builds its own masses, right? That are high in elevation. And then you give us vistas from up there. So you cross it like nobody's business. And it's just a delight. So I know we only have a certain amount of time and that's gonna be hard to, to reel it in because <laughs> we could go in so many directions, but I'm gonna I'm gonna just start with one question and then we just go wherever. But okay. um, this whole idea that you are not a photographer, mm -hmm. want that to come out, and maybe we could get you talking about this belief uh, uh, or frame of yours, which is to encourage people to make photos and not content. So. Yeah. Why don't we start there? You've got a lot to say about photography, so go for it. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you. And uh, again, the, uh, the, the take on my creativity is, is very interesting and peculiar, and, and I like that. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, everything I've done to get to where I'm at today I, it came because a lot of other people helped me. And that's something mm -hmm. that, you know, I, I was absolutely clueless when I got out of school. And it was other photographers that I was assisting for that looked at me and said, you're really clueless, man. Let me let me help you out here. It, if it wasn't for them, I probably would have never you know, been where I'm at. But I think when I tell people I'm not a photographer, it rubs some people the wrong way because I still make pictures. You know, I carry a camera every day. I sort of dabble here and there. But for me, calling yourself a photographer was always sacred ground. That meant that photography was your primary means of making a living. And that this was not a hobby. This was something that you had basically dedicated your life to. So in 2010, it was a Tuesday afternoon. I just was tired of being a photographer. I saw what social media had started to do to the industry and to my friends. And I was like, I just don't see this changing. And I don't really have any desire to be a part of it. And I turned to my wife and said, I think I'm done. And my wife's great. And she was like, you know, she, yeah, whatever. You're always going a hundred different directions, whatever. And I just deleted my main email account on the spot. And I thought, you know what, if somebody needs to find me, they will, but I'm just done. And with that decision was, I am not a photographer anymore. I don't make my living with photography. And so I just took it off the mantle. And for some reason that rubs people the wrong way, but it's, that's, that's the ideology behind it is, it's so rare that I get to go into the field and make pictures these days. And so, you know, I just came back from teaching in Albania for, for three weeks and I was able to make some pictures, but it's primarily the responsibility is to teach. So my photography falls down the list and that's the way it should be if I take the responsibility of teaching. So I do love photography. I, I, you know, the work that I shot in Albania, I've edited that, I've sequenced it. I made a 108 page zine from that, that no one else will see. That's just for me that I'll look at and refine it and make another one and another one and another one, which is what I, you know, that, that speaks directly to, to our book problem <laughs> where, you know, people are like, why do you keep doing that? I'm like, I don't know any other way to, to not do that. So yeah, that's why I'm not really a photographer anymore. Um, I probably love photography more now than I ever have. 
probably one reason because I just don't get to do it that frequently. And, and the, to compound things, the kind of photography that I love to do takes incredible amounts of time and access. And so it's not like I can go, oh, I'll just go turn this on for two days. I need like weeks to do this. And then everything I do, 99% of it is people-based and that makes it exponentially more difficult especially today when people immediately, you know, they see you in their first response is, oh, you must be like an Instagrammer or, you know, you're going to put this online right away and move on. And I'm like, no, I'd like to spend, you know, three months with you. And it just doesn't, it doesn't factor in. And um, I don't know if it ever will again. So I'm having to change my shooting style to sort of reflect the realities of today. Well, say more about that, that you don't know what will change and that you have to shift. Yeah, so I, uh, you know, I, I was, I would, I mean, I did a lot of different kinds of work in my career, but mm -hmm. I, if I had to classify myself as a photographer, it would be a long-term documentary projects. That's what I like to do the most, primarily black and white and analog based and all that. But I don't have time to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. And so year after year would go by and I'd be like, oh, I'm, maybe I'll get time and I'll be able to do this again. And now I realize that ain't happening. So when I went to Albania the first time in 2019, I was I was with a photographer named Elena Dorfman. She's uh, we co-teach in in Albania, mm -hmm. and I was like, I got to fix. I did some research on Albania, and I was like, oh, I think I have a technique that I can use that'll reflect what this place is like. And that was the technique of double exposures, which I'd never done before. And a part of me was like, you are so lame. This is such a gimmick. And you know it going in and you're going to do it anyway. So I got there and I started shooting these double exposures. <laughs> and uh, and I was like, you know, some of these actually look interesting. And, and the other part of me was like, it's a gimmick. It's a gimmick. And so I was like, okay. And then came back from that trip. And then I went back this year. And now I have a camera that not only does double exposures, it'll do up to nine exposures on one frame. It's a Fuji X-T4. And I was like, okay, this this will I'll refine this technique a little bit. So I did. And I started looking at some of this work and I'm like, this is actually kind of interesting. There's a lot, you know, I shot 2000, approximately 2000 frames total. I edited, there were 395 total multiple exposures. And then I edited those to 150 and then 39 and then 19 and then nine. So there's about 10 images total that would make it from the project. And I looked at them and said, I think these are good. I think these are interesting. There's they're a gimmick. It's still a gimmick. It's not like shooting straight photography, which I have mm -hmm. huge amounts of respect for, but you can't do it if if there's so little time to like make the work. It, it's just not something that I'm good enough to do. So the multiples became this sort of outlet. And then since I've come back, I've continued to make them because literally when I go out to shoot here in Maine, it's for like five minutes at a time and it's a fire drill. I'm just like any anything that is remotely possible because then I'll end up having to use it in films, I'll use it in blog posts, all these different things. And so my sh style has had to morph. It's it's had to change. I don't have time to get model releases on every person in the frame. Mm -hmm. You know, I just don't have time to do it. So I'm having to adapt. I always made fun of not really made fun of, but never gave respect to conceptual photographers like I should have. That's on me. That's my fault because I studied journalism. I was like everything was straight and very much filled with rules and do's and don'ts and i looked at conceptual art and said you know a lot of this is riding on concept and not so much the art and then now looking back on that that's my limitation that's my bad interpretation of it 
And I think that conceptual photography is probably the last open genre of photography left. I think, you know, looking at documentary photography, it's going to get harder and harder and harder to do that work. And with copyrights and, um, you know, certain countries are talking about banning photography in public places. There, uh, there's talk about any any image with a recognizable brand in the in the frame as a copyright infringement. People are tr celebrities are trying to copyright their image so that if anybody photographs them, they're going to be in copyright violation. All of these things are going to make it harder. And conceptual work to me seems like the wild west. It just seems wide open and so welcoming because whatever is floating around in your head mm -hmm. can can be a viable concept. Well, that's what's so interesting because your head is a particularly uh, fast moving one, right? So it seems interesting that you're uh, considering that portal as a new frontier. I think that will be super interesting to follow. And then tell me, what are you looking for in a photograph when you are editing and you said interesting, but what what makes what makes the grade? Uh, my friends are going to, they're going to ignore this part because I've said it <laughs> so many times, but for me with straight photography or like regular documentary projects mm -hmm. or portraits or anything, it's always light and timing and composition. Those are the three. Light is number one. That's the first thing I'm looking and scouting all the time. When the light's bad, I'm either doing something else or I'm uh, looking for little places where it's not so bad that I can still make work. The multiple exposures are a totally different conversation, but light timing and composition. Light is the number one driving factor. Um, I see so much work that's done, documentary work, street photography in bad light. And I just don't, that, I don't even, it doesn't register because to me, that's the first thing you need to be looking for is why are you shooting in the light that you are? And then timing, because I love reality-based photography and reality-based photography does never gets its, its, its dues. And especially in the art world, and I think Paul Graham has written some really amazing pieces about this. But I think reality-based photography, especially today, when so much of the photography I see is controlled content, mm -hmm. you know, the odds of making great images in the field when it's reality-based is so low and it's so difficult and time-consuming and expensive. And when you get it, it is such a monumental feeling of success, like, oh my God, you know, the mm -hmm. the decide the Cartier Bresson, the decisive moment thing. So light, timing, and then composition is what you have to figure out how what yours actually is. Because I think today a lot of people are trying to move so fast and try to get famous so fast and try to be popular so fast that they never actually figure out who they are. They just look at what's popular and copy it. And to me, I, I look at photography, I look at life as a long play. I don't want short play. You know, back in the in the 90s in, in Los Angeles, cross-processing was the rage. You know, all these like celebrity portrait people and fashion people were suddenly cross-processing. And they're taking Kodak EPP and running a transparency film and C41 processing. And it did have a distinctive look. It was like that bleach bypass look that also impacted Hollywood at that time with mm. uh, movies movies like Three Kings. And I looked at it and I'm like, I worked for Kodak. And I was like, EPP's going away. And so when EPP goes away, so does your career if this is the one thing it's built on. And a lot of people went away because that film went away and other the newer films didn't cross like that. So I think I look at long plays in life slow methodical long i like 
I like humans, and that could be anyone, <laughs> civilians, professionals, writers, artists, illustrators, photographers, whoever, that are thinking long-term, not short-term, mm -hmm. and building their own ecosystems that are not dependent on someone else's algorithm, that mm -hmm. they're just going through life and you're like wow and when you see that they're not they're not like chirping every day all day long not not posting all day every day they're just out there and when you see them or hear something about them you stop what you're doing and you pay attention because you know they don't pop up all the time mm -hmm. and that's my life is it really shifted years ago when i deleted all social social accounts for the most part i was like i don't want the short stuff anymore i just want to think about long term Mm -hmm. I know that I heard you say Instagram is eye candy. Um, and um, how, I guess, I'd love to understand once you made those shifts and, and you are a uh, calling yourself a shifter and your media uh, shifter is makes so much sense. And, and it sounds like um, adaptation has become such a life skill for you, um, so ingrained, and that's wonderful because that means there's a fluidity um, and uh, a, a willingness to let go of what's not working, but it's also what I hear is an integration with your own experience of it. It's like, this isn't fun anymore. Or, you know, you're really integrating this internal, external, which is on a personal level with also all the other layers, right? Within career, within this new, uh, it's not so new anymore, this, you know, our technical virtual world. Um, so I love to hear you pull it apart. How do you, or did you um, build your own ecosystem? Wow. Well, I mean, my default answer to everything for the most part is I don't know. So <laughs> I'm, I'm very willing to say I, I have no idea. And when I, I started to build my ecosystem in the early 90s, uh, I think it was 1992, I was living in Laguna Beach. Or no, it was later than that. It was 96. I was living in Laguna Beach. I had just met my wife. She was living in Laguna. I moved there. And I had um, I had started working for Kodak. It was very beginning my Kodak career. And I had met a photographer in LA named Greg Gorman. Mm -hmm. And Greg uh, was at a creative conference in Laguna that was an invitation-only event. That was a really cool event. And I was not invited. And I literally lived 30-second walk from where it was being held. So I was like, and Greg, Greg reached out to the organizer and said, hey, this kid lives right there you should invite him and so i got invited to this thing and i'm sitting and the guy next to me it turns out is the guy who invented blogger the mm. platform mm -hmm. jeffrey something i think his name is jeffrey something super cool guy who basically when i went to the restroom took my journal without me knowing and did this unbelievable illustration in it that i didn't find until weeks later <sighs> so i get there and this this like 12 year old kid gets up on stage and he's a web designer and he's, des he's designing million dollar sites at 12 years old. And he gets up and says the word blog. And I was like, what is that? And Jeffrey, the guy next to me, I think his name was Jeffrey says, it's the same thing you're doing in your written journal, but it's online. Oh. And I was like, I was like, when did this happen? And so I went home and I signed up for this blog. I, I signed up for an account on blogger. And I started blogging and I started blogging about 
everything. I would do like I did a piece on why Charlie's Angels was the most important show of the of the decade. I did fake movie reviews. I did all kinds of stuff. And then I did a little bit about photography. Uh-huh. And I also would publish the pieces that I was actually doing professionally. So I was writing per, uh, for people from time to time and I would publish those. And it was just like this, uh, I, you know, it was the beginnings of my site that I have today, a lifestyle site without the style is how I describe it. <laughs> and it was just all over the place. And this woman, all of a sudden, one day I get an email from a woman in North Africa and she is an expat whose father was a diplomat and she'd lived all over the world. And she was building, rebuilding a Riyadh in, um, in northern Morocco, like an old Casbah, and was turning it into a hotel or an Airbnb or something before it was Airbnb. And she, her site, her website, her blog had, had won like blog of the year again and again and again. She was very successful, very intelligent, great writer, great personality, good photographer, you know, the whole thing. And she, out of the blue, reaches out and says, dude, you're on to something. But you cannot keep doing what you're doing. You can't write fake movie reviews and then do a serious piece about photography. It, you have to just do one thing. And I said, never going to happen. You know, thank you for the, the kind words. And she and I corresponded for a long time. And but I was like, I can't do that. And so I realized that in, in trade for popularity, I just needed to continue to put out what I felt I needed to put out. And that is something I, if you looked at my YouTube channel anytime lately, you, you know that that's the case. Um, you know, I did a film a few days ago, which you, you've obviously seen part of, which is I'm not cool, describing all the reasons why I'm not cool. I'm about to do one um, called Dear, Dear Future President about... 15 or 16 traits that I need to see from the next president that we do not have. We're not even remotely close. Either party has no human about like what I'm about to describe, but I'm sick of what we currently have and it needs to change. Most of the people coming to my YouTube channel, to my shifter site, to my discord server, all of that are there for photography. But the truth is I don't want you there just for photography. I want you there to have these greater discussions of which photography is a part but I'm not talking about camera gear. I'm not talking about nuts and bolts. I'm not talking about all that nonsense. And if I did, my, my numbers, my subscribers, my likes, my following would be exponentially larger if I went down that road. And I cannot ever do that because I, it would bore me, bore me uh, to death. But when I look at my ecosystem, I work full-time for Blurb. Blurb is the primary point in the center of my personal and professional life because there's virtually no separation between those two things because all of my friends are in this industry and this business i can't get away from being the blurb guy regardless of where i am so they're they're intertwined blurb is the centerpiece and takes a huge percentage of my time Mm -hmm. so my ecosystem which is you know youtube and shifter and discord and that it is like a fire drill every day there is no rhyme or reason to it i i I, it's probably five percent of my life and i'm just randomly you know i'll be like oh i got 45 minutes i'll do a podcast and i'll just make up 10 topics and go and just do that so i look at people out there like craig mod in japan mm-hmm. and i look at craig and i'm like okay he can write he can design he can photograph he's what i would call a technologist he actually knows how his website works which is not like me and he's good. He's like a five-tool baseball player. You know, he hits for power, for average. He can field, he can steal bases. He can do all this stuff. 
and he has newsletters. And I think the newsletter is still to this day one of the most important things any serious person can do. It's so much better than having to have me go to your social and like look at a zillion other people at the same time and like try to get through that and on a phone, no less. So I look at the ecosystem that a guy like that has created and I'm in awe. I just look at it and go like, I'll never be that guy. I'm not that together. He seems so intelligent and well-rounded and together. And I'm like in a van, you know, it's like, um, it, there's a huge difference there. And so build it back for us. Mm -hmm. You, you went into your blog, your blog stayed as eclectic as you are and mm -hmm. and when did blurb come in yeah so blurb came in in 2006 but the the book the book thing the print thing came long before that so i mean i obviously grew up in the analog era so i pro you know i began in the dark room triax and d76 and all that which i still love by the way mm -hmm. i had to give up the dark room when i got lime um, but it's in, in someone else's good hands and she's really good and she uses it and she's has a gallery and sells prints and stuff. So it made, that makes me really happy. I started, you know, printing in dark room 88, I think was the first time I made a dark room print. And I was like, oh yeah, this is, this has got my name all over it, you know, tasting the fixer. Cause they told me to try that. And, uh, and then it wasn't until. I went to the, I was, I got an internship at a newspaper when I got out of school, graduated in 92, got an internship, took me a year to find an internship. I got one and it went well, went really well. And during the time, a, a photographer who was shooting for Sports Illustrated came through town and he said, called the photo editor at the paper and said, do you have anybody who's an assistant that's in good enough shape to keep up with me? And I, he said, yeah, I got this kid. He can, he can keep up with you. And so I started assisting for this guy for years and he, I lived at his house. He was incredibly helpful in me getting started. He also called agencies and editors in New York and got me my first appointments in New York. And I went to New York with my portfolio mm -hmm. and I had a tie that had cameras on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did. Ouch. Oh my yeah. God. It was bad. It was okay. really bad. Not your coolest moment for sure. No. And I had really long hair mm -hmm. and I had a, and I had a tie with cameras on it and I had 20 pages in a slide, sheet of slides. That was my entire portfolio. Uh, uh. And the top two rows were singles and the bottom two rows or three rows were, were an essay and nobody had a loop or a light table. So I would go to these agencies uh. and editors and they were holding this stuff up to like <laughs> windows and and they'd be like halfway through the essay and they'd be like, is this a story? And I was like, what? This is my moment and you're blowing it because my portfolio sucks so bad. So I went back to Arizona, went back to the paper, to the design department. I remember to the exact person I went to who's hilarious. He had no filter at all. Mm -hmm. And I said, I said, dude, I got to build my own magazine. And this was in 93. Mm -hmm. I said, I got to build my own magazine. And he goes, you're an idiot. It's impossible go away. And so I went out on my own and I had a Macintosh Performa 630, which is a beast of a machine. It, you know, and I could do one page of design at a time <laughs> and I would do it and I would put it on a zip drive and I would drive to a Reaper graphics house who had a quote computer kid in the back who would take it and plug it in and print it. And the color was always way off. 
but this kid liked me and we liked each other. And he said, if you give me a big print of your work and I'd gone to, um, I forget where it was. I think I had an image from Guatemala he really liked. And so I made this big print for him and he, we worked together and we made this magazine and I saw it and I said, this is, this is everything I've been wanting my entire photo photographic life. And then I was, um, also at the time. So I had, I was living at the house of a photographer who worked at the paper, who was a full-time staffer, a guy named Paul Giroux, who I'm still friends with today. And Paul got the first Epson printer I'd ever seen. It was called an EX. And he and I went down the rabbit hole and all night, every night, making prints, laying them out on the floor of his house, sequencing primitive design. You know, we'd have like a column of text and an image. And that was like a huge deal when we figured out how to put text over an image and and we, I built an oversized 11 by 17 magazine that I laminated and bound and I shipped it. I sent it out to 10, like I sent it out to New York Times Magazine, Nat Geo, German Geo, Stern, Spiegel, um, a bunch of people that I knew. I was like, they're never going to hire me. But like, I, these are the people I want to work for. Mm -hmm. And I, and I sent it to Susan Mizellis at Magnum. I sent her one. Uh, I'm trying to remember who else. Susan sent it back with a letter and it was the most polite thoughtful generous letter um kent koberstein at the time nat geo wrote me the same thing handwritten full page letter saying i've never seen a portfolio like this how did you do it what is it um and then he also said something like you don't need to go to cambodia to make pictures you can do this in your backyard so don't overlook the fact that you can shoot in your own backyard which i thought was great advice uh and then new york times never did anything with it um, and then I get a call one day from this very, very German accent, <laughs> which I can't do, but you get the idea. <laughs> yeah. And it was the photo editor for Geo, German Geo. Mm -hmm. And and she said something along the lines of, I don't want to work with American photographers or something, but this work that you did in Guatemala is really interesting to us. And we are thinking of doing a story about the Maya later in the year and i want to consider you for that project which never happened of course but anyway the response to the printed piece that was was just overwhelmingly positive mm -hmm. and those things by the way started to fade and color shift about two weeks after they were printed whether they were laminated or not so you had uh -huh. to print them and get them in the mail really fast because they would turn to completely magenta oh my gosh and that, that started the book thing. Blurb came in 2006, and I had been using a variety of other companies. And then Blurb came. Amy, my wife, went to work for Canon Cameras, went to New York to Photo Plus Expo. Blurb had a booth, came back with a little uh, promotional thing from Blurb. And I just immediately went to my desktop, create, downloaded the software, made a book, sent off, forgot about it. And it came, and I was like, huh, this is interesting quality wise blurb was nowhere near at the time what other companies were like but blurb was a system i would describe it as a mint and i would still describe it this way today it's a mini google in the background of your business or your career or your hobby or your life and you pick and choose off the shelf what you need and want based on the project and then you toss the rest away until you have a new project and then you go back to the shelf and you pull the pieces that you want and I was like, oh, there's a bookstore. So I don't need to go. To, I don't need to go to the post office every day. And if you live in LA and you go to the post office, you know how bad that can be. So um, I have a really fun, funny post office story if you want to, um, if you want to hear it, LA post office. Um, 
I do, but I think there's so many other topics. I'm okay. Okay. We'll, we'll save it. On booking. Yeah. We'll save it. Okay. We'll save it. Yep. LA post office. I won't forget. No, it's a good one. Okay, it's, good. it's, it, you know, it speaks to so many things, but um, yeah. And the book, the book thing, I, you know, I started making blurb and the, the books had really the, the sell, the sell point for me was the bookstore where I could just send clients to a bookstore. I didn't, and they would buy, buy books and they would be printed and shipped directly to them. And I suddenly had this, I was not shipping and receiving anymore. It was as simple as that. Mm-hmm. And blur was going, you know, there were growing pains. I was shooting a lot of T-Max 3200, which has, you know, a sea of grain. And the printer was like, not really sure what that was. And I would get these, some of my black and white images had these weird dot patterns. But the cool thing was my phone rings and I answer and she, the, the person on the other end says, hi, my name's, my name's Eileen Gittens. I'm the founder of Blurb. Um, your books look really weird. Who are you and why are you using us? And I was like, whoa, that's kind of cool. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, we talked for a while and Eileen being Eileen, very personable, very smart. You know, this was not her first company that she'd launched and she was a photographer. I didn't know that at the time that she was a photographer. So she was coming to this from the same angle that I was. I just didn't know it. And she said, what do you want in the future? And I said, are you being polite or you, do you really want to know? And she said, no, I really want to know. And I said, I want to make small run art books outside of mainstream publishing because the work I do isn't economically viable for a publisher. I want to do these obscure stories. It doesn't make sense for me to, you know, for a publisher to do this, but I find these stories interesting. And she's like, do you think there's a lot of other people that want that? I said, everyone I know wants that. And so she said, why don't you be on the advisory board? And I said, I don't think I'm an advisory board kind of person. And she was like, very politely was like, no, it's not like guys in suits and ties. It's people who are using the platform that we can pick their brains about what would work in the future. And I was like, oh, that sounds good. Mm-hmm. And then she said, okay, come to San Francisco. So I flew to San Francisco and I went into the blurb office and I was like, oh, I'd never been in what I would call a tech office before. Um, I'd never been around a crowd of people like that. And the blurb employees, whether it was 2006 or today, they are wildly talented people and not just in what they're doing for blurb. It's just an incredible place to go into because the level of intelligence and range of talent outside of what they're doing for blurb is really cool. And you you come out of there and you're just like, I haven't done anything yet. I don't know anything. I got to go home and get better. I got to get better. Mm. So they, you, I mean, that is such a cool um, uh, combination of your, I mean, it's like you move, you jumped on a moving train that was going in a play, like you just, it's so synergistic, right? What you were able to give to it and what it was able to give to you. And I love your title. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was interesting because I was hired to build a database no one, oh. I mean, not many people know that. I was hired to build a database, which is what I had, when I worked for Kodak in the late 90s in Los Angeles, I would, I, they gave me a laptop computer and the laptop had 50, I think, no, it was 25,000 names. And I remember my boss going, those are your customers. And I was like, I don't think so. I go, I, I think there's about 500 people in the Western US that we should know everything about them. The high level professional photographers people like Greg Gorman, 
What does he shoot? What's black and white film? What color film? Why? Where does he get it? How much does he use? What does he like about it? What does he not like? What are the limitations? All that thing. And by the end of four years, I had it. I'd whittled 25,000 down to 500 and I knew everything about these people. So when I met Eileen, Eileen said, you know, what, what do you think about, um, you know, this job, uh, job at blurb or something. And we talked about database. And I said, what I would do is I would build a database of top customers that you want to work with and see what they're they do the exact same thing. But instead of talking about photography, you're talking about publishing and printing and like what their, what their needs are. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I was hired for. But very shortly after they hired me, I got a call saying, have you ever done any public speaking? And I said, yes. And here's the funny part. I am an introvert. I am very, I, I score wild off the charts on the introvert scale, but I fabricated a version of myself to do this job. Mm-hmm. And that's my extrovert version that I turn on and off when I need to. So people in public see me, they see me give a talk, whatever. And they go, man, you're so gregarious and you're so whatever. And then my friends are like, that's not him. And, and, and I say <laughs> the same thing. I'm like, that's not really me. I would rather be in a you know cabin somewhere, the Ted Kaczynski cabin somewhere, <laughs> uh, because I just am very much an introvert. But when I was, um, and I'm never going to name names, but when I was very early in my photography career, I got to see two of my idols speak. And they were horrible. They were so bad. They they couldn't put a sentence together. They had no sense of humor. They hadn't edited their work. They were unprepared. And I walked out of both of them, one man, one one woman. And I was like so disheartened. And then I got a chance to see them again. And I said, I'm giving them another chance. And I walked out again. And I said at that moment, that will never be me. I am going to, when I give a presentation, whether you like or don't like what I'm saying, you're going to remember it because I'm going to make you laugh. I'm going to keep it moving. I have a plan. I have everything memorized. I know exactly what I'm going to say when. And by the end of it, you're going to be like, wow, you know, that didn't suck. Because I think most people that go into presentations are expecting it to be slow and lame. Mm -hmm. I really do. And so when you get up and you're not bad, when you're not slow and you're not lame and you can be a little self-deprecating and you can be honest, which is often missing in a lot of presentations today, honesty, they are so relieved more than anything else that the <laughs> the rest of it is cake that you're like, oh, I'm stuck inside this building for an hour and a half. And this guy isn't horrible. How great is that? You know, I did a talk two nights ago for APA in New York. Uh, we did it uh, by Zoom. And, you know, the first the the second slide of the show says anytime i say the word blurb you can insert any company you want and then i list like 20 other competitors to blurb and say here they are knock yourself out so you know i'm not here to just promote the company willy-nilly it's not a perfect system but it's really interesting and if you can't find a use for blurb then it's on you because there's a zillion things you can do with it and then i sh- i proceed to show them you know, 20 case studies that people just look at and they go, oh my God, I never would have thought to do that. I've never seen anything like that. You know, that to me is really interesting. So my blurb job shifted immediately. I never built the database and I just began like doing public blurb events all over the place, Australia, Europe, Canada, and the US primarily. And um, and I'm still doing it today. And the evangelist, where did the title come from? 
you know, my title the first seven years was photographer at large. And that was a joke between Eileen and I. And she said, you need like a cool title, you know, something cool. And we kind of laughed. And then like two weeks later, I get a business card in the mail. And Blur business cards were beautiful. They were letterpress, really nice cards. And it said Dan Milner, photographer at large. And I was like, oh, my God, that's hilarious. And then they shifted it. I don't know who I don't remember who changed it. It was probably four years ago, maybe they they changed it to creative evangelist, which I think at the time in, in San Francisco was like a term that was emerging. Mm-hmm. Um, and now there's a someone at Blurb and I are talking about changing that again, because I'm not, you know, I don't, it doesn't really matter to me what my title is, but I don't know that that's a title I need anymore or want anymore. I think we come up with something better. Mm-hmm. Well, Dan. <laughs> yeah. The, 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 the Uber shifter or the meta shifter, even though you don't want to go near that. Sorry, just a joke. Um, yeah. You know, you know, the, uh, when I moved to Santa Fe full time, which was a couple of years ago, right before COVID, um, I I was unpacking the car at our little casita in downtown Santa Fe. And a guy I've never seen in my life comes by on a bicycle and he goes, Hey, blurb guy. And he just kept going. (laughs) So maybe it's just the blurb guy. That's good. Well, I'm telling you, there are so many ways in which I want to take our conversation kind of is really hard in, in reeling it in. I just have to share with you, like your mom and the rhinestone bell bottoms, like I love her and I've never met her and that entire, like I just doubled over and I can envision the entire thing. Oh my God. You are so funny. So tell me, so from your ecosystem um i believe you started the podcast and then moved to youtube but i I did wrong okay yep yeah so so just a word about what do you get out of the different platforms what do they do for you or what is your uh why shift what were those shifts about the podcast was so there were two podcasts there's a there's a a podcast that's an interview with creatives called dispatches where I sit with someone and I do about an hour long audio recording that I do not edit. There's no editing, Mm -hmm. but there's also no video. And I shoot one Hasselblad six by six square portrait of the person. I shoot one roll of film in less than two minutes. That's my goal. And I shoot that. And then I've got the portrait and the, and the audio recording. And then I started a second podcast called for what it's worth. And this is where I just talk about random topics. And I love this because I read a lot. I read about um, all kinds of topics and I'm, I'm interested in stuff that goes way beyond like photography and books. So I do that. And then, uh, so the podcast, I don't really get anything. I mean, I don't, there's no monetary return. I don't track the numbers. I have no idea how many people listen. I don't really care. I love doing this and I love putting it out, but the whole thing, all of this, whether it's the camera or shifter or discord or YouTube or whatever, I just have this weird compulsion to record. It's why I write in a journal every day. It's why I do the interviews. There's no one telling me to do this. There's no one asking me to do this. I just do it and then I put it out and I move on. And the same thing with YouTube. When when COVID started, Blurb said to me, can you do motion content? And I said, I don't know. I've been a still photographer my whole life, but I would like to learn motion content. I feel like motion is a language that I don't know how to speak. And I would love to experiment. So I started experimenting with YouTube. And the funny part is... Um, 
a friend who has a very successful YouTube channel, right before Blurb asked me to do this, my, this guy reaches out, out of the blue, and he says, hey, uh, do me a favor. Make a YouTube film and send it to me. And I was like, I don't know how to make a YouTube film. I said, I don't, I don't, even, I don't know the first thing about it. He goes, it doesn't matter. Just set up a camera and record yourself and talk about something and send it to me. So I'm like, okay. And I did this film called Going Solo with a 50 millimeter. And I can't remember where I had been. It might have been Albania the first time. And Amy took my second camera and lens. And I was stuck with one camera, one lens, 50, which is my favorite lens anyway. And I was like, yeah, fine. I'll just shoot this whole trip on a 50, which I did. And it's kind of liberating because then you don't have to think about your equipment. And I'm a big fan of less is more when it comes to camera equipment. So I send it to my friend and it's crude. It's the production quality is horrible. And I send it to him and he apparently posted it. And I had no idea. He posted it on his channel. And then like a couple of days later, he sends me this email and says, are you watching this? Can you believe this? And I was like, what are you talking about? He goes, look at what's happening with this film. And so I looked and apparently the numbers were really high. And he said, you know, you reinvented YouTube. And I said, that's impossible. And that doesn't make any sense to me. And he said, you don't realize you have an actual photographic education and a background and experience. And he said, 99% of the YouTube photography related people do not. They're gear reviews and they're talking about stuff, but there's no real world experience and they don't have this kind of knowledge and things. And I was like, I thought it has to be, that can't be, that can't be right. And I did some research and I looked at people on YouTube, got a lot of traffic and numbers, and it was primarily just equipment reviews. And that's not interesting to me. So I was like, okay. And then I looked around and there were a couple of people. And this was before people like Alex Soth had a YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, I think maybe my friend is more accurate than I first thought, because I can't really find a whole lot of, of like real world education, how to do a photo essay. Like, does anyone have any information about how to do it from doing your research to finding the concept, to getting access, to working with people, to doing all this stuff? Nothing. It was all like, hey, the new Nikon Z9 is out mm. and it's better than the Z8 or whatever, which, by the way, that looks like a great camera. Um, but I don't know anything about that. And I'm not a technical person. I can, you know, I have my my technical woes are are hilarious. Well, I mean, you've got a great deal of experience with different aspects of technology, even just listening to you, um, the way in which that you can compare cameras, et cetera. I mean, it, it yeah, I get it that um, that's not where you're coming from, but you do have that expertise. But I'm thinking of like, I think it was recent, you did a very short piece on inspiration. Oh, that might, was it, uh, was it a color thumbnail? Was it for blurb? It, it could have been a, a little. It was a thumbnail. And, and I'll tell you, it was gorgeous, right? You, and, and it was you walking on a rail of a railroad track as mm. you describe something. You cut a few different, when you talked about motion content, I felt like it was a collage of motion content that was really smart and 
you know, it was minutes long, if that. So, so I'm sensing that when you did your first playful experiment, jump off the high dive into YouTube, you came at it with all of what's in your backpack and you blew people out of the water because it's, it is content rich and it's also a very unique perspective. Um, it's engaging, it's informative, it's aesthetically pleasing. Um, yeah. I think, I think the reason why that I have six and, and the success I have on YouTube compared to like a real successful YouTuber is minuscule. It's tiny, but the reason I have what, the, what I have is I'm honest, number one. Yeah. And that's not, that's in short supply Yep. because if, if the goal is to become palatable to as many people as possible, honesty is only going to get in the way. So you have to realize I'm honest and I'm not asking anything from you. I tell people, don't hit this, don't hit the subscribe button. Don't hit the like button. And in fact, what you should be doing instead of watching this film is going out and working on your own projects. Mm -hmm. That is not a great recipe for like becoming a social media superstar, but <laughs> I, I don't want to. I can't imagine having to create that facade person. And this is an interesting topic because YouTube in particular is a relentless pursuit. It is, and it's driven by an algorithm. It's no longer driven by expertise within, you know, there's no longer probably a mountain biking expert on staff calling content at YouTube to drive the relevant content to the top. It is all driven by algorithm, as are all these social networks. The algorithm always wins. It will destroy you and it destroys the best people in the world. And there have been numerous examples over the last two, three years of absolute superstars on YouTube running into mental health problems. And the algorithm will crush you and win and turn you inside out and it will never look back. It doesn't matter what you've done for it. it does, it's not your friend. Mm -hmm. And so I know that going in. And if I, I have no posting schedule, I have no schedule of what I'm going to do next. It is all 100% on impulse and whatever I feel like doing. Mm -hmm. And I don't track the analytics. I don't care. I make no money from this at all. I'm, I'm, there's a little bit of money like trickling in. I probably make a hundred bucks a month from YouTube. I'm not monetizing anything mm -hmm. because I don't care. The one thing I do is I answer every single comment that comes in. Because to me, when you get to the point where you can't answer your comments anymore, depending on who you are, and, and look, there's a lot of people on YouTube who are doing amazing stuff. There really are. I mean, if you want to know something about the new M2 MacBook Air, Marcus Brownlee, who has out of New York, that guy is incredible. I mean, the production value, one, he seems cool and nice, and he's very smart and very knowledgeable, and the production value is gorgeous, and he has a sense of humor. Mm -hmm. And people trust him and he's an interesting guy. And, and it's like, if I need to know about the M2 MacBook Air, I just go to Marcus and like, he's going to tell me in two, two or three or four beautiful minutes, what the realities of that computer are. That's, that's amazing about YouTube. So the, the positive out there, it's there for sure. It's the photography stuff where it can kind of get a little down the rabbit hole of like, you know, again, like equipment reviews and all that. It's relevant. If you need a new camera, yes, it's nice to have some info, but um, for the most part, I'd rather talk about the imagery that comes out. And most people don't want to talk about imagery. They want to talk about the front end of the process, not the back end. Mm, interesting. I'm definitely 
the back end of the process. But I, yeah. um, I'm, I'm looking at our time and, and want to uh, just touch on a couple of different things before we wrap. And okay, one of them is totally um, selfish because I don't know what you mean by a space pen. Oh, you don't know about my space pen. Mm -mm. Um, where's my backpack? Oh, it's, it's, it's made by a company called Fisher. Mm -hmm. Hang on, let me grab it. It is right here. <laughs> Always within reach distance. So Fisher has been around forever. They're a famous uh, pen maker and they make this little pen called the space pen which was, I think, originally associated with the NASA program. And it was a pen that was designed to work in space. Mm -hmm. And it works underwater, and it works in zero gravity, and it works everywhere else. And it's a very basic, um, incredibly well-built, strong little pen, comfortable to write with, and it's a ballpoint. I normally don't write with a ball pen, ballpoint. I use a fountain pen. But this one, fountain pens tend to explode on airplanes. And yeah. so... I was finding myself like using it, not using it, using it, not using it. And I needed something to take in the field. And uh, I switched to a fine point. They always come with medium points, but I put a fine point in and I love it. And I joke about it all the time because now it's become sort of a part of the shtick on my channel is I always act like I've never mentioned it before. And then I mention it all the time to where people are sick of me. And oh, by the way, because of this, I get text messages from Fisher and and I write them long replies that that I've never had a response to and I know that I never will because it's probably a bot sending them out but I think it's hilarious to have like a record of these emails that I send back like oh hey thanks for reaching out did I tell you how much I love my pen uh conversation well it was really funny because I'm a pen um snob I'm a pilot roller ball girl and sure. they explode on airplanes and yeah happened to me just one too many times um so cool i will look into your um into your space pen to see what that's about but i really appreciate i i wanted one last thing and it's not really a small conversation but i love that you are this font of creativity and this idea that you are following your own path and 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 you're not looking, the idea is not um, replicating, um, but there's massive amounts of collaboration and it goes back and forth. And then mm -hmm. I also think that you do um, contribute to the collective um, with information, which I really appreciate, which very similarly, you know, my photo book book group turned podcast is not something monetized or something that is about me. It's about content and sharing that and, and kind of coming from a there's enough for everyone mentality. Um, yeah. I appreciate just these three things and maybe we'll, I'll, I'll put them out there and we'll have to come back to, to really unpack them. One is this idea of the um, conversation that you have with your work, allowing the work to inform you. That is something that I drill down and work with individually with people and in my teaching and in my writing like that. We are so similar. Um, the idea that small is good and, mm -hmm. and, and specificity matters, I think is something I would say you would agree with. And um, 
I love that you talk about the power of youth. Okay, I'm going over my three um, because it's that idea of you are very clear and I appreciated this opinion where you were like, hey, a lot of our systems are still the old guard like that dies hard. We're looking at it on a lot of different uh, mm -hmm. levels, right? And so mm -hmm. it's the same within our field. So, uh, you know, it was something that I touched on a little bit at the end of my last talk um, with Jason, that, that, that this idea of our changing landscape and being able to surf with it, um, mm -hmm. not hang on, because what's the use? Um, so all of that, and there was one more, this idea that, and this is the one I really want to unpack at some point, how you made a book and can talk about making a book with one photograph. And, yeah. and it was so interesting, because in listening to you, like, I so wanted to say, can we see that picture, uh, the image you made of your niece? Because when you described it, I just loved it. And of course I had that in my mind. And, and, and that, that to me is really the essence of the magic of photography, right? It, that packs such a punctum punch, right? Yeah. And so anyway, those are all things I wish we had more time to talk about, but that I yes. think you are, uh, a true font and and a moving one, which I really, really appreciate. There's no, um, you know, I think the things you hang on to like honesty and authenticity and and uh, a, a level of no BS is is the only thing that's not moving. Everything else is shifting. I mean, the term sure. is perfect. Yeah, I mean, I think I don't, I'm not entrenched photography is not the primary focus of my life anymore. And mm -hmm. when I deleted social all those years ago, I made a parallel decision or a simultaneous decision to, to, to start every time I felt like I needed to go on social, I would read and not, mm -hmm. not online and not magazines. I would read book length material. And the first year I read 80 books and the next year I read 80 books. And by the end of the third year, I started to feel more intelligent. And I was by this time, social was so ingrained in society. I would go to parties and hang out with people who couldn't get through a sentence. They couldn't put their thoughts together. They were holding their phone the whole time. And I was like, oh, I was whispered a secret. And now I'm in, I have the control because my brain is a long form brain. And, you know, it's interesting. I'm, I just started a book about Oppenheimer, the book that won the Pulitzer called American Prometheus. And he, you know, within 15 pages in the front of the book, you're like, I'm not good enough. Like th this guy already, by the time he was in, you know, 10, 11 years old, was already on the path that would, because he was kind of weird. He was like me, he was introverted. Mm -hmm. He didn't quite fit in anywhere. His parents didn't quite know what to do with him. He was kind of get gawk, you know, uh, awkward and gangly and had no girlfriends and all that. And I'm like, check, 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 check. Obviously, intelligence level way beyond mine. I mean, he's kind of a savant in some ways with physics and chemistry and things. But you start to understand the education that he put in. And to me, reading is a free education. And I can't imagine not doing it. I schedule reading like I'm scheduling this call, like I have the blurb call next and I'm interviewing somebody else later today. The reading is scheduled in and it just is the reading is one of the foundational pieces of everything I do. Because mm -hmm. so many ideas come like Oppenheimer when July 1645, when they tested the atomic bomb at Trinity in the in the room afterwards, people were laughing, people were crying. 
Um, they thought they had ended the world when they saw the mushroom cloud. They were like, oh God, we blew up the atmosphere. We're all going to die. And Oppenheimer was, was thinking of a Hindu text. And, and the, the piece was, I've become deaf to the destroyer of worlds. And I'm like, okay, so here's a guy who helped invent the atomic bomb. And yet when it goes off, he's thinking about a Hindu script. That's fascinating to me. Like, how did those two people, how did that one guy be those two people at the mm -hmm. same time? You just built a device you knew was going to probably be used in horrible ways. But yet that to me is fascinating. That's far more interesting than any conversation that I could come up with about camera equipment. So I would rather spend my time understanding that and then take what I learned from that and be able to filter it back into things like YouTube and Discord and the blog to say, like, have you thought about this? You know, mm -hmm. what can you what can Oppenheimer teach you about being a better photographer? I don't know, but I guarantee there's a 10 things that you can learn from this guy. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, and I appreciate just as I started with your the introduction of all the things that help feed your your creativity, um, you know, that's that is key and seeing the correlations between those different fields, like the whole idea of, you know, choreography and, and, you know, there's so many different forms of both art and then other outside physics, science, etc. that just feed our, our thinking, our looking, our concept development. Um, That's right. So you are, you are you are doing a good job on your ecosystem. <laughs> then you're amplifying it to these other layers, which I will be tuning into so so much more than I have. I knew, but now I'm like not going to want to miss anything. Um, and I, I is there anything you want to say in a parting way about artists' inspiration or? I think, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of times the conversation, and I wish this was more of a conversation in, in photography. I think sometimes what gets lost is before, if you're a photographer or a designer or an illustrator or an artist of any, any sort, you are an official member of the creative industry. Mm -hmm. And the creative industry, when it comes to return to the things like GDP, is much, much, much higher than it's given credit for. Cre the creative world touches everything. It touches mm -hmm. government, it touches industry, it touches all this stuff. And before you're a photographer, you're a member of the creative industry. And that comes with a power. It mm -hmm. comes with an inherent power that you have to understand and harness without abusing. Mm -hmm. And if you understand what that power is and you harness it, that is how you create a career. That is how you create equal standing with the people that you're engaging with, where you don't come into a job subservient and gee, what kind of budget do you have? You come in and say, look, let's, let's work together. Let's collaborate. This is what I bring. What do you bring? Great. This is what we're going to need to do this. It's an empowering thing that gets lost in the race to be famous. Mm -hmm. And you better understand it. Because to me, it's the only thing that's going to help you secure a career, like a multi-decade career. It's, it's the antithesis of cross-processing. It's like, this is the foundational belief that I am a contributing member of this part of culture and society. There's a fascinating study done a couple of years in Australia about this, because Australia has this incredible mining wealth, you know, mineral wealth that's just mm -hmm. crazy, crazy strong. 
But someone did a, a study on the the return to the GDP, Australian GDP of the creative industry. And it was like shocking because people were like, oh, you know, why is this spoken of in this way that we speak about industry? So that's the last thing that I would say. Yeah, just actually understand that. Is- that. That's interesting because one of the things in my research on concept aware was looking at creativity studies and the economic impact. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, huge, huge, yeah, huge, huge. It is. Well, to be continued because yes. we have a lot more we could talk about. Um, I so appreciate this time and you fitting me into that schedule. Um, so I'm going to sign off and then I'm going to just. Uh, circle back because we um we make a resource list and thank you so much for um rolling with all of this and so much fun Uh, i like how you think (laughs) thank you so much and you are a wonderful interviewer you you are your questions are fantastic and the research that you did everything it's really impressive and the i mean fantastic that's the best most interesting questions that made me like stop and really and that's rare so very 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 well done thank you thank you very much 